Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffer, New Hampshire. Our new series is focusing on the book of Titus. If you were building a church from square one, what would you make sure to include into the architectural schematics and blueprints? Titus aims to examine the framework and the core beliefs that make up a good church. Jesus has laid out instructions for us to follow, and according to Paul's letter to a young pastor, Titus, the Christian church should always include humble leadership, sound doctrine, godly living, all sourced from the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus. So join us as we dive into examining what makes up a Christ-centered church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. We're starting just this short series. We'll spend about uh, four weeks looking at this this letter that Paul sends to Titus. Um, And we're really looking at this series to be kind of a snapshot of what should church life be? How is is the church structured? Why do we do what we do? What are some things we need to be aware of as the church? And so we You'll, you'll see there in your, your outline if you were able to get, grab one or you can get the digital one there through our website. But this basic outline that I want to see, we're going to be looking at chapter one in, in its entirety this morning. And there's three main things that I really want us to see that, are, that, are, that we see in the, this chapter here. One is understanding what we believe, what's at the core of what we believe. That's the, the, the common denominator that draws us all together. That's the thing uh, that we see scripture refer to as there's a lot of peculiar people all gathered together in the same place. Why? And it's because of the gospel. It's because of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. The second thing that I want us to see this morning is that as the church, we need to have in place godly leadership. It, it's essential to how uh, a Christ wanted the church structured. But then also the third thing is that the church and especially the leadership of that church is tasked to protect the flock, to protect this flock. And so we begin this series in Titus in order to understand the structure of the church. Now here in just a little bit, we're going to read through Titus. And and as we read through that, you may be wondering, why did we pick Titus to talk about the structure and mission of the church? It's very short. It's very concise. It's very to the point. And that's kind of why we picked it. Because we believe it's it's a wonderful letter for us to consider on how Jesus structured the church, how its leadership and its community of believers are to defend and combat against both internal and external threats. But before we jump in, uh, Titus may not be familiar to all of us, and so I want to take a quick look on at, as to who Titus is. Paul is writing to Titus, and so Uh, likely this being a lesser known letter compared to someone like Timothy, who Paul also writes to uh, in relating to the church. I think it'd be good for us just to take a moment. So this letter from Paul, as we see in verse four, if you haven't turned already to Titus, you can turn to Titus chapter one. In verse four, Titus, or Paul refers to Titus as my true child in a common faith. Uh, Titus himself, he's born from Gentile parents. He's, he's not a Jewish believer, and that would be a, a big part as to what kind of led him to Paul and then how uh, Paul and Titus would work together. 
He's, Titus is led to the, the Lord uh, by Paul. He's converted to Christ by Paul. Uh, this letter's written kind of later in Paul's ministry. I'll, I'll get into that in just a moment. And Titus had already been a help to Paul. He had traveled with him. He had helped set up and deal with the issues of the early church. He was originally from Antioch in Syria. And, and Paul and Titus, their working relationship, Titus travels with Paul and Barnabas to the Jerusalem council. And if you're like, what in the world is the Jerusalem council? Okay, we had, we had a, a group of individuals that felt like circumcision, the tradition of the Jewish people, should be added on and, and be part of an essential doctrine of the faith. And Paul comes in with Titus, really as kind of proof, not being a Jewish believer, and in the, between Paul and Barnabas, and Barnabas and Titus, they argue at this Jerusalem council. We can't add anything to the gospel. It's all about Christ and what he's accomplished, not about what we can add to it. And so eventually they, they do win that argument and protect the integrity of the gospel. So that was early on with Titus as he's a believer. Titus is with Paul in Ephesus on Paul's third missionary journey. At that point, Titus is sent to Corinth, uh, possibly carrying the, the letter that we now know as 1 Corinthians. Titus is likely the individual that delivered that to the churches in Corinth. Titus then meets up with Paul in Macedonia, most likely giving a report on, hey, here's how the, ch the churches in, in Corinth are doing. And then he ends up heading back to, to Corinth, carrying a second letter uh, there. And then Titus ends up spending a lot more time there in Corinth, again, to kind of set things in order. So if you want to see some of the instruction he was already given, he would have been taking the things that Paul had written to the, the churches in Corinth and says, hey, here's the order that, that needs, to be, needs to happen. And Titus was the individual kind of behind all that, making sure it happened to oversee those things for a time. And then after Paul's first imprisonment, Titus is, ends up being left in Crete to provide uh, order to the churches there. And that's kind of where we're going to pick up right here. Likely, Titus had traveled with Paul before and seen this location. And then Paul ends up leaving Titus there. But then in this letter, as we'll see towards the end of it, he asked for Titus to come back to Nicopolis to meet him. And uh, that request is made. And then Titus is then with Paul during his second Roman imprisonment. But Paul sends him to Dalmatia, and this is when Paul writes his final letter to Timothy. Uh, some believe Titus is the one that ended up carrying that final letter to Timothy, uh, who again is another young uh, leader within the early church. And this is all done before Paul then is eventually martyred for his faith and belief and leadership in the early church. Now, I've taken the time to help us see those things. Uh, one thing that I am very passionate about, it's one thing that kind of led me to believe in God and trust in Christ, was I needed to understand that they, these are real people, real places, real events actually happening. And I think it's important for us to see the, the bigger picture of what's going on here. Titus is not just some random leader that Paul says, hey, I'm going to send you a letter to encourage you, to help you out. Titus had been, uh, you know, saved under Paul's ministry. Paul sees potential in him and then eventually uses him in this mighty 
way within the early church. We, we begin to see with Titus and with Timothy as well, but there's a shift in what Paul's kind of way in which he's spreading the gospel is changing and how he's helping the churches is, is changing. Paul, again, he spent much of his time traveling by foot. Estimations of right around 10,000 miles within his lifetime of traveling to help spread the gospel and help organize and help the church. But I believe Paul begins to realize that his time was limited and his inability to be everywhere at once was not going to be realized. And so he started sending ambassadors. Titus and Timothy would be great examples of that. Barnabas as well and others. Paul especially leans on them when he realizes that his death seems near due to the political unrest towards Christians, which would eventually lead to Paul's death. Now in Titus, uh, there are only three chapters in this letter, and there's only a total of 46 verses. And so because of how short it is, I'm, I'm going to do something that, that we normally don't do, and maybe some of you have never done with Titus, is we're going to read the entire letter together that Paul wrote to Titus. And I want us to see the flow of that letter. I want us to see what is, what is all that Paul is kind of bringing to Titus. And so I would encourage you, grab your Bible, follow along with me. It'll be on the screen as well. But as I read, be looking for what the main thing that Paul is really, really passionate about as we go through this together. So I'll start right off, Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, They're empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party or the uh, Judaizers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet, a scholar of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How would you like that for all of eternity and God's word? That is what you're known about, right? Verse 13, 
This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that not opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The core thing sprinkled all throughout this letter to Titus is the gospel. Paul starts with the gospel and says this has got to be the foundation that all of us are unified around. The solution to the issues and the challenges that the, the, the churches, the followers of Christ here in Crete are facing is the gospel. We'll get it to it in, in more detail, but those who are causing havoc within the church, those who are these, these living out their cretinness in being liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons, the answer isn't to attack and maliciously remove them. It is to confront them with the gospel, with truth, that they would come to their un- an understanding of the simplicity of the gospel, the necessity of Christ and Christ alone in that gospel. And so what we believe is the most important part. And so everything that follows has to build off the the reality of God's plan being necessary in the gospel. Paul starts out with a clear presentation of the gospel, gospel because he knows this is what will provide the most impact towards the task that Titus has before him. And the same goes for us, church followers of Christ. It's in your name. Christ must be central. I was never great at math, especially when they started throwing shapes at me. I did not know what to do with them. I couldn't draw them, let alone know how long or wide or tall or just didn't know what to do with it. Then you had like graphs, right? And pie graphs. I love pie, but I hate pie graphs. We can look at our lives like a pie graph, right? That they're just parts of me. Oh, these are all the things that represent me, right? We can take tests even that tell us what our little life pie graph should look like. But if we're not careful, we can think, yeah, that, well, that's, yeah that, that seems like a good idea. You know, here's kind of family, here's you know, work, here's fun, here's you know, God in there, and right? We, we put all that in. Well, that just makes up who I am. I, I, but I think what Paul is arguing for is that Christ is not just a piece of that pie, but instead we, we need to look at our, our, our lives more like a hub, right? That, that bicycle wheel that has all those spokes connected at the center, and at that hub, That hub representing Christ being the central point that all the other things of life are connected to. There's no disconnect. Everything comes by and goes through our relationship with Christ. And as we read this letter, we should should have seen this general layout of the letter. That chapter 1 has instructions specifically for Titus around, okay, how do we make sure to remind ourselves of the gospel, and how is that lived out? But then also in chapters 2 and 3, 
It handles more of the instruction that is specific to the church in Crete. Hey, those of you that are followers of Jesus, how do you make Christ central in everything that you're doing? In dealing with some of the attacks, in dealing with some of the false teaching, in dealing with getting along with one another, in keeping Christ central in everything you do, in caring for those who have a need, in caring for those who in emergencies come up. Step in. Why? Because you've been loved by Christ. You've been loved by the creator of the universe. Why would you not give of yourselves? Why would you not make him the most important thing in your life? The overall concepts of Titus are this. There's the current state of the church in Crete. We read it from one of their own, uh, you know, uh, prophets there. They're unhealthy and they're in disorder. And so the church in Crete needed restoration. They needed health and they needed order. Health and order would be accomplished by gospel proclamation and gospel application. The church in Crete was a mess, and they needed some work. And Paul uses the gospel to outline God's plan, not just for Crete, but for all of us. Because the church of today is not unlike the one that we see here in Crete. We are facing attacks from within. We're facing attacks from our culture. And we must love the gospel of Jesus Christ, have sound leadership, and be willing to confront those who are attacking the simplicity and truth of the gospel. God's gospel plan is this. It's a promised plan. It's the part of the letter here that we cannot miss. It is the central theme that we see sprinkled all throughout this brief letter. If we can grasp the truth of it and let it really impact us, really impact the way we live, the way we view the world around us, it could have potential of changing our own lives, yes, but also begin to change the communities and culture we find ourselves in. If you've ever even had an ounce of desire to see the world you are in change, if you've even had the slightest desire to see yourself be more than what you are right now, then this is exactly what we need to hear. It's exactly what we need to understand. It's exactly what we need to apply into our own lives. What is so amazing about the gospel is that it wasn't initiated by Adam and Eve. Okay, let me say that again, because I think some of us missed that. What's so amazing about the gospel is that it was not initiated because of Adam and Eve. The gospel was not a result of an oops moment by God when we see in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve sinned. Verse 2 in Titus tells us that the gospel was set before time. That this was God's plan all along to bring the most glory to himself and for our benefit. But God's plan involves participation. Verse 3 says it's, it's manifested in his word through preaching, through proclamation, through the sharing of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us very clearly that salvation, a relationship with Jesus, is found because of the grace of God through faith in Christ that it's not about anything we have done, 
And it's not even about what anyone else has done apart from Christ. We are saved because God invited us to himself and through his power and our acceptance of his power, he saved us. So how do we participate in God's plan of the gospel? Those of you with small children understand that they like to try to help with everything and the things you don't want them to help with, right? But there's, there's an important aspect of having them come alongside of you and, and helping out, right? So Kobe, our three-year-old, if let's say we're needing to move the couch, Marcy and I are working on the couch, and he decides he wants to be helpful today. Well, it's easy to have him like, come alongside and help grab a hold of that couch, and he'll stand right next to me and, and help Marcy and I. Now, is he actually doing anything? No. Right? But, but I want him to see, hey, this is what we do. We help one another. I want him to be part of what we're doing. I want him to have the satisfaction of having that feeling that he was a help, to be a part of that joy when something's finally accomplished. Right? We, we've been fishing the last two days, and he has caught three or four fish, meaning that his big brother reeled it in, but he got to have the picture with it, right? Because it was his fishing pole. Now, as imperfect as, as these stories are to help us understand how we participate in God's plan of the gospel, God does a very similar thing when he invites us to show and share the gospel. It's not our power that's saving anyone. It's not our power that ultimately convicts someone of their need for Jesus. But God invites us to participate with him in his plan. He invites us to watch, to participate with him in seeing his plan be successful. How cool is it to be part of the plan of God when we get to see people come to Christ and see people make choices that help them grow closer to God? And if you haven't felt the joy of participating with God in his plan, you can and you should. I loved hearing the stories of our team that came back from South Africa. There was, you ask any of us that went on that trip, there was nothing we did to change anyone's lives. But man, we got to participate in seeing people's lives truly impacted because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's plan also provides grace Grace is God giving us something that we have had no business having or earning. And the gospel is all about something we don't deserve. Because of sin, we're unable in any way to have a relationship with God. We may think that we're spiritual because of the church that we may go to or the family that we're in or how often we read the Bible or how often we spend time in prayer or because of some spiritual experience that we've had. But the truth is, apart from the grace of God, we would be headed to our eternal punishment in a real place called hell, eternally separated from our creator. But because of grace we can be saved from the penalty of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 gets right to the heart of the matter. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order to have a relationship with God, we needed Jesus. In order to be seen as sinless, one who had never sinned, Jesus came and gave his life as payment. 
In order to stay out of hell, we needed Jesus. In order to live life with any meaningful and lasting purpose, we needed Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we will never have anything. We owe everything to Christ. And if for a moment we think that we've done something or are doing anything to save ourselves, stop. It's by the grace of God that we are saved and it is by the grace of God that we can amount to anything. So what does this look like then in real life? It means that we deflect all praise to God. We're quick to thank him for how he is using us. Our life is not about me and my talents, but is ultimately about God and what he has gifted me with and how I can give him glory by participating in showing and sharing the gospel in whatever way in which he uses us. It's all his power, his plan. God's plan, though, as Paul points out, it provides peace. He says grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. If you've looked at the news at all, our world is full of confusion. It's full of craziness. It's full of a culture that is desperately trying to do life without God. Look at what our friends and family are feeling and going through and the justifications that they try to make and the turmoil that they walk to because of the decisions they are making apart from God. Look at how we feel at times and what we go through in life. This world has come a long way since it was first created. This world is spiraling out of control because of sin and mankind's desperate attempt to do life without God. And so while circumstances and events may still seem out of our control, there is a peace that is found in Christ. Peace in knowing that God wins in the end. He will come again. He will set everything in proper order. There is peace knowing that when I die, I get to be with Christ, totally separated from the craziness of this world and the temptation of sin. Recently, um, just a little over a week ago, Some of you may be familiar with the name Tim Keller. He's a pastor and scholar. He loved Jesus. And his son put a statement that his dad, Tim, made when he finally made the decision that I just want to go home. He says, I just want to be with Jesus. I read that sitting there in my lazy boy, looking at my family all before me, my three boys and my wife, and I go, even as a pastor, that's a, that's a hard statement to really mean. But that's exactly what Paul is arguing for here. He's saying, listen, this is the kind of peace you can have when Christ is the center. Every, every other detail, he's got it. My, my whole heart's desire is peace through the gospel, which is found through Christ. Paul also points out to Titus that this plan, this gospel plan, it needs to be shared. It needs to be proclaimed. And so as a follower of Christ, we should not be ashamed of this gospel that saved us. We shouldn't be ashamed of the God who sent his son to die for us. We shouldn't be ashamed of this savior, Jesus, who paid the price on the cross for our sins. Paul sets up everything he's going to instruct Titus with based on God's plan the gospel. What is God's plan for the church, for humanity? The gospel. 
If the foundation is not set and viewed properly, then nothing else will matter. The foundation is what everything else will build upon. The centrality of God in life is what everything else should flow out of. The bottom line is for us to be a bold witness. Being a witness does not have to be difficult. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us clearly and simply what we are to do. Be a gospel witness in word and in our action and then watch God work. The pressure is not on us. The gospel you are sharing in word is simply this. Christ died for your sins and then he defeated death to prove his love for you. He paid the price for your sin and defeated death to prove his love to you. And if you personally have not put your faith in Christ, this is my plea for you, to put your faith in the one who paid the price for your sins. He is alive right now and loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so Paul starts with the gospel. This has to be central. And it makes sense, as he'll hear shortly at the end of chapter one, begin to say, listen, you need godly leaders that are serious about this gospel because there's a group that wants to add on to it, to one, who wants to complicate things, and it's causing disunity. But before that, Titus, or Paul challenges Titus on the structure that needs to take place in the church. The church in Crete was a fairly young church plant, and there was a ton of negative influences around them. And so they needed a core group of leaders who were motivated by the gospel to combat against the false teaching and also to stand as examples to the rest of the believers. I'm not going to take a lot of time here. We, re, Pastor Jordan did a great job recently talking through leadership in the church. And I, I would encourage you to look at that uh, message. It was from April 16th. You can find it on the church website where it dives a lot deeper into the leadership of the church. But here's what we see throughout the New Testament, that the church is not supposed to be structured around one guy. That lacks checks and balances. It's not supposed to be one guy and multiple churches because that also lacks checks and balances. But instead, there's to be elders, plural, that share authority. That it's not based on age, but instead your spiritual maturity. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, listen, you can't be a new believer and be set into this position. There should be a plurality of elders that provides those checks and balances. And the qualities that we find here in Titus of the elder is that, it's, that he is above reproach. That he's the husband of one wife, that he has order in his home, that he's not to be arrogant or quick-tempered, that he's not to be a drunk, violent, or greedy, but he's instead to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, pursuing holy living and discipline. So countercultural for Crete and so countercultural for us. But probably one of the most important aspects of this is that he must hold firm to the doctrine, the teaching, the central core teaching of God's word. Why? Well, here's why. He says in verse 9, right towards the end, you need to, need to be given to instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Not only teach it, but you need to be ready to see those who are attacking it. Verse 10, for there are many 
who are insubordinate. They're empty talker, they're deceivers. There's a key role for godly local church leadership, and it's to protect the attacks both within and without the local church. As Paul gets into in the verses 10 through 16, he says, we must confront those who are divisive. They're, they're destitute in how they talk. The false teachers of Crete were not few, but many. And it had apparently risen to some degree of prominence within the churches there. They're described as rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those who are from the circumcision party or Judaism. The term rebellious speaks of their attitude, while empty talk addresses their actions. These men were a law unto themselves, claiming a direct pipeline for God, saying, listen, this is what God really intends for your life. Yes, Christ, but also you need this. Yes, Christ, but you also need to to do this thing. And Paul's saying, Titus, no, that's, that's empty talk. That's rebellious. These individuals who are a law unto themselves, claiming a direct pipeline to God, and who would not be held accountable to anyone, this rebellious, egocentric spirit produced what Paul called empty talk or useless words. These false teachers were like a cotton candy preacher. A lot of show, but no substance. Are any of you disappointed by cotton candy? I am every time. They're dangerous in what they think. Here in Crete, the Judaizers were were offered a Jesus plus theology, which ultimately results in minus Jesus theology. And this is the only math you're getting out of me today. When we attempt to add Christ, we end up subtracting from him. This is the spiritual math that these deceivers use. They're corrupt in their own thinking and infect the thinking of others, often overthrowing whole households like a a fast-spreading cancer. They're promoting a man-centered message and a what I can do and what I can get from Christ's gospel that deflects our focus from Christ and his glory to ourselves and our accomplishments. I love that we sang the songs that we sung, but especially the one that reminds us that the role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ. If the role of the Holy Spirit becomes the focus, we have missed the job of the Holy Spirit. He came to point us to Christ, to apply what Christ did into our lives. As a result of of a what I can do gospel, the beauty and greatness of Jesus is either ignored or at worst it's denied. And so Paul says it's necessary to silence them, to prevent them from ruining the unity of the church, its witness in the community, and ultimately, the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're dishonest in what they teach. In this ministry of confrontation, Paul was uncompromising. 
These individuals must be silenced. They must be stopped. The truth of the gospel must be used, though, as the primary weapon against them. They must be held accountable for the real results of their activity. As, they, as it says here, they're ruining whole households. They're dividing families from one another. Additionally, their motive for ministry was dishonest gain. It must be exposed. It must be addressed. And he says, Titus, your leadership team, the ones that I'm calling upon to to lead the flock and protect the flock, they must confront those who are the deceivers and those who are being deceived. Who they are is clear. According to the text, Cretans are known to be untruthful. The phrase evil beast refers to individuals who are driven by their base desires and impulses, including lusts and other passions. They're motivated by what they want, what they can get out of it, their attention. They're unconcerned with the well-being of others, truly, and their actions can be destructive and harmful. These individuals, they're self-centered. They're, they idolize themselves. The text also describes Cretans as lazy gluttons who lack self-control and discipline. They indulge in excess at the expense of others, often indulging in their own appetites at the expense of others. And so what they believe must be confronted in verses 13 and 14. But I want you to see the heart of it. This testimony is true. This is what they're doing. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Our goal in performing this spiritual surgery should be pastoral and redemptive. Meaning that we aim to help those who are self-deceived and deceiving others to become sound in the faith. We cut to the core. We, We want to liberate those trapped in the quicksand of spiritual bondage and malnutrition. While we confront, we do so in love, pointing out error with the hope of recovery to spiritual health and vitality. Paul recognized the danger of Jewish myths, these fables, the commands of men, this man-made rules that veer from the truth. Religious speculations that go beyond or against scripture and rules and regulations that add works to grace are humanistic rather than Christ-focused. And we must confront and denounce them as the lies they are. Those who teach these Jewish myths and man-made rules are appropriately described as those who reject the truth. Rather than holding firm to the faithful message as taught, they turn away from it, denying what they once knew and lived. And this only makes them more dangerous. We must confront those who are defiled because they lack purity on the inside, inside, verse 15. Contrasting with the pure, those who are defiled and unbelieving deem nothing pure. In fact, both the mind, how they think, and their conscience, their moral judgment, are defiled. Their entire inner self is corrupted. And so it's no surprise that they reject the truth as they are intellectually and morally defiled. Every aspect of their being is infected with the disease of sin. And the sin these false teachers are espoused to and confusing others with is a me-centered religion. It's a Christ plus something else that cut to the core of what should only be credited 
to Jesus. And they lie in their profession, what they do outwardly. The tongue, a vital organ in the body, is connected to the mind and the conscience. How we think influences how we speak. If we lie to ourselves, we will lie to others, and we will lie about God. False prophets claim to know God, but their actions deny them. They trust in their own works, their own wisdom, their own righteousness, denying the leadership that God has placed within the church, denying the God they profess to know by preaching a man-centered, humanistic message that emphasizes what people can do. They make themselves into the idols. And in the process, they disregard the truth of Scripture, question the sinfulness and inability of man to save himself, and diminish the importance of the cross. They insult the Holy Spirit and create their own false system of salvation. And so in the end, Paul condemned these people with strong judgment. They are detestable, which reflects God's attitude towards idolatry. They were disobedient, rebellious, insubordinate. They put their own ways and agendas before God. They were disqualified. That is, they're worthless, unfit, and rejected for any good work. Ultimately, they were counterfeits and fakes, failing the test of true faith. Charles Spurgeon gives a fitting conclusion to the ultimate aim of the ministry of confrontation. If you're looking for the hopeful part of the message, this is where we're getting into it. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, provided we are obliged to come to the conclusion that our minds are not pure, we need not end there. For there are means by which they may be made so. Glory be to God, if my mind and conscience are defiled, they need not always be so. There is cleansing. I cannot effect it for myself, nor can any outward forms do it, but God has set forth Christ to be a savior. He shall save his people from their sins, from their sinfulness. And whoever believes in Christ Jesus, that is, trusts him, there is already in him, in him begin, the beginning of purity. God the Holy Spirit will give him more and more of the likeness of Christ. For he that believes shall be saved from sin, from indwelling sin, from all sin, from the power as well as from the guilt of it. Faith will cleanse him applying to him the precious blood and the water which flows from the side of Christ. Faith will, by the Holy Spirit's power, become a, become a cleansing as well as a saving grace. God grant it to us, and may we all be among the pure, unto whom all things shall be pure. I said at the beginning, the church today is not unlike the one we see here in Crete. We are facing attacks from within and attacks from the culture. And so we must apply what we see Paul encouraging Titus with as he's trying to form this church together. We must love the gospel of Jesus Christ above everything else, Christ and Christ alone. We must strive to have sound and godly leadership. We must be willing also then to confront those who are attacking the simplicity and truth of the gospel. What we believe together as a church must be united around 
the gospel. This is the hub, Christ as central. As the church, we must have godly leaders, and these godly leaders must protect the flock. So it comes down to this simple truth. May God help us to be a bold witness for his plan and live life with God as central to all that we do. These things be the marks of Hope Fellowship Church until the Lord comes. If we make Christ everything, then it absolutely can be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Without Christ, we have nothing. We would be lost in our own sinfulness, our own ways, with, with no anchor point, with no direction. And yet through Christ, you've given us not only salvation, but grace and identity and, and purpose and truth. Lord, for, for those who, who are hearing that now and it just seems unbelievable, Lord, would you, your spirit help open their heart and mind to the reality of what your son did for them on the cross to pay the penalty for their sin? Would we strive to make the gospel, your son Jesus, the core to everything we are about? Would you help us to strive to have godly leaders in place to help guide and encourage and equip and to protect this flock here at Hope. Help us to be bold about our witness. Help us to be bold about sharing Christ with others. Providing them an easy way into a community that wants to love them to the Lord. Help this to be at the core of who we are. May, it, may we be found faithful in our pursuit of you and in our love for you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.